From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Winemakers Podcast. We'll put Bart in charge of this. You know, I don't know who put me in charge. I offered it to Brian, but he declined. Um, it looks like we're recording I, here. Th- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're good. This might be a perfect one for Ed to finally edit us. Um, welcome to the Winemakers, everybody. It is uh, Thursday morning here, um, just before, a uh, week before Thanksgiving. Um, and we have, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher your name. Bertrus from Belong Wine Company. And um, nice to have you, my friend. Uh, I got a chance to hang out with him yesterday. Yeah, you bet. I got a chance to hang out um, for a little while yesterday with him, socially distanced, tasted a couple things. Um, And I'm looking forward to having you and hearing about your story. Uh, You were born and raised in um, uh, Cape Town, uh, South Africa. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, so I uh, I was born born and raised in Cape Town, but I ended up going off to boarding school as is kind of the norm down in South Africa, uh, and that was in Stellenbosch, kind of the heart of the South African wine industry, uh, and that's kind of where the the wine bug bit me initially. But uh, I moved out here in 2012 full time to to join up with the the guy currently still working for for my day job, um, and that's James Cole Winery and Tank Garage Winery. Uh, but before that, I did 2010 and 2011 vintages here, just um, kind of flying out for the season and then going back to South Africa. So, but you did work, um, you did work at wineries in South Africa, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I studied kind of the UC Davis equivalent down there at the university um, of Stellenbosch. And once I graduated, you know, 2008, right when the recession hit, it was a great time to try to find a job. But I was pretty fortunate, kind of six months out of university, um, being offered an assistant winemaker position. And that was with um, kind of the Hess Collection group of wineries. Uh, They used to own a winery in South Africa. So those uh, opportunities that were about three and a half years and during that time I was able to come out to Napa do the first my first vintage in 2010 with Hess uh, and a little bit with James McPhail up in uh, Healdsburg. Who was ah, super cool. Yeah he was. Love those Pinots up there. Beautiful Pinots. Yeah. That Sequana label for them um, even before they kind of bought the McPhail label. So that was an awesome experience and then that's kind of when I fell in love with the values. 2010 um, and so I came back out and you know Hess is a, it's not a small operation you know between the two facilities they were doing something like 12,000 tons and I was way more used to kind of 650 tons hands-on um, small lot winemaking so it was a bit of a shock to the system but it was a great experience you know meeting everybody in the valley and, and I feel like 2010 is right when Napa was kind of coming out of the recession already a little bit you know, Marimoto had just opened a notary, all these cool places and a lot of young people that kind of um, 
had an influx into the valley. So it was a really fun and uh, exciting time. Yeah, there's no doubt okay, that tell about us that. major difference between South Africa. Here is like big difference between South Africa and Sonoma County or, or Northern California. Yeah, it's um, it's it, they look shockingly similar except for the mountains down there um, tend to be a little bit more striking, like dark um, evergreens kind of all around them. Where versus like the Golden Hills out here, uh, especially at the height of summer when I came and visited the first time. I think one of the main differences is I feel like um, in general, you know, barring climate change and all of that, it's been. Uh, my my final vintage in South Africa was 2012, but it felt like we were harvesting more in the summer than we are able to harvest here in Northern California, mm. where we're kind of more edging on the on the uh, fall side of things. Um, and then one of the main big big differences is uh, South Africa or Cape Town is really close to kind of the hole in the ozone layer, so the pure UV intensity is just dialed up. Um, so the same temperature just feels way warmer, Whoa. Uh, which also accelerates your your season a little bit more than people realize. So that's like a thing, like there's a hole in the ozone layer that's just over a certain part of the planet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is, you guys just using a lot of hairspray down there or what? Um, no, you know what it is? Like, you know, we had a park side, which was terrible, and maybe that was just the, the, the universe punishing us <laughs> for some <laughs> That's weird. I never thought about that and how it would actually affect grape growing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've spoken to people because I've never been to Australia, but I've heard similar stories in, in Australia where, you know, the same temperature you go outside and you're not wearing sunscreen or you're not wearing anything and it'll, you get punished way quicker than you do here. In, in wow. So, so does that, how does that affect, ahead. sorry, how does that affect uh, vine growth? Are the vines more vigorous because they're bringing in more UV light to photosynthesize or is it just drying the matter? Are you getting like you have more sunburn issues? It's a combination of all those things depending on where what region you're in. So you have like super coastal regions which get a lot of uh, moderation you know from uh, ocean breezes and all those things and then you go a little bit more inland you get you get pretty fertile soils but in general South Africa doesn't have you know it's not like Central Valley. It, it doesn't have crazy fertile soils. You have to travel pretty far to get that uh, accelerated ripening element. You know, you're really kind of trying to rein that in and trying to find that that balance between um, ripening flavors and tannins and all those things, and not just having your your sugar accumulate super quickly. Interesting. But, you know, and everybody was, there's, a, there's been a lot of work done in the last 25 years, basically, since we rejoined the, um, 26 years since we've rejoined the international circuit, so to speak, um, on trying to improve vineyard quality and all those things, because the plant material and the vineyards were, barring like the old, really awesome Chenin Blancs and Cinsos and all these, these gorgeous things, um, the, the general production vineyards all needed a lot of attention and huge kind of leaf roll issues and, and all those things. So, um, you know, I think it all just has some pretty big challenges. Right. Wow, you guys make Chenin Blanc, huh? And oh, yeah. And since so. There's some epic, like, old vine, old, uh, old vineyard out there. And then, and then Pinotage, which I think is something that I, 
I first experienced in the early 2000s was it's like some hybrid between Pinot Noir and Cinso, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, and that, I mean, there's some really great examples, but there's also some really terrible examples. So Pinotage is kind of a love hate for a lot of people, but uh, I've been pretty fortunate to drink some epic ones and especially with some age to them, they kind of start straddling that line between Pinot and um, maybe a little bit more Southern Roni kind of character. Um, so really, really interesting. Nice. And what, and Sam, are you drinking the same thing I'm drinking right now? Uh, 2019 Chasing the Sunset Rosé Wine from Belong Wine Company. Is that what you're drinking? Yeah, Movedra, Sanso, and Grenache. 48, 29, 32. Beautiful. It is great. So it, uh, there's, a, there's a, like a candy that I'm trying to replace from my childhood on the nose. And I want to say like Sour Patch Kids or sweet tarts. Like those things. It was kind of Sweet Tarts, but it, it was more like there was these things. I don't know. It's going to take me a minute. It's not like a, it's a it's like a sour candy. I didn't eat a lot of those sour candies. Like like a green apple that like had little sugar crystals on the outside. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like I don't know. Sorry. Like, um, like the the like rope thing. Um, like sour apple kind of rope. A hundred percent. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah, and a little bit of that that green or sour apple from the Brocks. You know, the hard candies, the Brox hard candies. I pick up some of that um, also. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, that's how um, uh, the candy companies make, uh, you know, they use fake things to make real flavors. In this case, uh, you made uh, a real thing with real flavors. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. So um, let's let's back up a little bit. So you, you moved here. You worked for uh, a couple wineries. How did you meet up with Tim um, and, yeah, so, and, and talk about that a little bit? So it's super interesting. So let's see, I moved here in 2012, worked for four wineries, all, all kind of um, co-mingled partnerships slash partners own wineries. Um, and that's transitioned now to where I'm only working for two wineries. But in 2016, basically, is when, um, you know, we had made a transition. I had been promoted to head winemaker for these guys. And we had made a transition of, of consultants and had been looking for someone to fill in the role. But between these four wineries, you know, it was everything from $15 rosé and California cab and wholesale up to $180 Napa Reserve and everything in between from like carbonic and um, we were planting pet nuts and orange wines and all these things. So it wasn't a very clear cut traditional consulting side of things. And I've been fortunate enough to meet, meet Tim Milos um, through some other friends and, and at random tastings like the Mount Meter Appalachian tastings and things like that. So I, I knew that he had, um, he had a lot going on and a lot of diversity in his portfolio. And in and bringing that experience, I, I thought um, he would, might be a good fit. So I, I threw his name in the hat and he came and interviewed and just kind of blew, blew the competition out of the water. So, so this is a little since, bit different. Since, you, uh, since 2016. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool because in the case, like a lot of times you're a winemaker for a winery and ownership brings in a consultant to, um, you know, uh, progress things along or stylistically. And in this case, you were the winemaker for these couple places 
and you got to bring in the consultant. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's certainly a twist on it a little bit. That's really cool. That's really yeah, no, cool. I'm very happy and very fortunate that that worked out. Tim and I have had a lot of uh, fun times over the last couple of years. And then, so somewhere along the way, um, Allie came into the picture. Um, uh, your wife, right? And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that goes along with the name of the winery uh, yeah. from, from the website. So, uh, so I met my wife in 2010 in my first harvest here in Napa. Um, she was working as a server at a wine bar in downtown Napa, which is this kind of precludes um, cadet even opening. So Carpe Diem wine bar used to be the, the, the hangout spot for everybody in Napa um, around young people and wine. And so we all, it's kind of where we made uh, our deep friend um, circles happen. And one of the reasons I knew about it is um, as part of my kind of first vintage experience, I was also doing sales for the, the winery in South Africa, Glen Carlew. And so my final day, I, I uh, remember doing a presentation to like Young's Market sales uh, teams at, the, the, at a hotel here in Napa and then going and doing two calls. And one of them was to Carpe Diem and they actually were pouring the Chardonnay that we, uh, I helped make in South Africa by the gloss there. So it kind of, very quickly became my home away from home. And so we met there. She had started um, right around the time that they had started in 2010, kind of mid 2010. And so I, uh, I remember meeting her and we were kind of friends, just very friendly, uh, but never anything really happening. And then in 2011, when I came back for my second harvest, that's when we actually ended up going on our first official date. And um, that ended up being a really funny story because we, I had planned a, a date, so I made a reservation at Bouchon and uh, showed up with a bunch of flowers, and she thought we were going out for drinks, so I kind of sprung that one on her just a little bit. Uh, and so that was kind of the start of, of us falling in love with Mavedra, um, because we had a bottle of Domaine Tampier and this awesome lamb dish there, and it was just this real awesome moment. Uh, but then I had to kind of leave at the end of that season. Um, even though I, that's when I was offered the position with the, with the team uh, and the wineries here in Napa. Uh, but I had to leave to get my visa and stuff like that sorted out. But I had also promised the winery in South Africa that I would come back and help them in harvest, which tends to be kind of end of January through mid-March-ish. And so I couldn't just drop them and try to stay here uh, illegally. So I, I left and the visa process started and it took five months, I think, for the whole visa thing to get sorted out. But once that was uh, finalized, I moved out here with uh, two, you know, two suitcases and, and my golf clubs in 2012. Um, and not too long after that, we, my, Ali and I became pretty serious and um, got engaged in... I like in that you said that we fell in love with Mavedra before you said you fell in love with each other. I was like, yeah, and then we fell in love with, with Mavedra. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so it's uh, it, she was all right. The Mavedra was fantastic. <laughs> it was a little bit like that. It, it took a little bit of convincing on her end. I had to be slightly persistent. Um, <laughs> oh, fair enough. She was like, "Um, oh, this guy is okay, but I, I go for another bottle." Now was that was that that wasn't a rosé? That was actual. Yeah, like, yeah. So uh, Mavedra heavy uh, okay. blend, and so yeah. we. 
we started talking right around the time that we got engaged and, and trying to figure out, you know, as you have those longer term conversations, like what do you do, want to, want to do one day? Like what's, what's the dream kind of thing? And I had always dreamt of, of doing my own label um, and, and she kind of loved that idea. So she's heavy on the creative side and she studied uh, sociology, but prior to that almost studied um, interior design and things like that. So she kind of loved that idea of having some creativity. And I think right around that time, um, this was even before, you know, with Tank Garage, we, we've grown uh, Tank Garage, my day job, so much in doing, you know, 40 different varieties and all this crazy stuff that most people don't get to work with and orange wine and pit nuts and carbonics and all that stuff. But uh, re rewind a couple of years and 60 to 70% of my portfolio was Napa Cab. And so... I was getting pretty burned out pretty quickly on making these really, really heavily extracted intense wines. And so we were drinking um, $12 Grenache that we would get from backroom wines or all these really refreshing, easy drinking wines. Um, and so we fell in love with that style a little bit. And then, um, yeah, so, so once we had that Mavedra kind of as the focal point, we, we uh, almost started our label in 2016, but uh, with some, um, Mavedra or Mataro from Contra Costa, but right before, kind of two months before harvest, that fell through, uh, luckily almost, I think, because that made it possible for us to really take a step back and reevaluate and try to figure out well, where we knew Mavedra was going to be the, the, the lens that we wanted to, to view things through, but we then took a step back to figure out, well, where do we want to source grapes from? And so we picked up uh, a couple of different bottlings from all over and tasted them over, over three nights and try to figure out, okay, well, which one speaks the most to us. And um, it was this uh, Skinner from El Dorado that spoke to us the most. And uh, I love that. I love that wine. Oh, it was so beautiful and just so much life to it. Even on night three, it just was so bright and delicious. I mean, yeah, Brian, that was one of the, you turned me on to that wine, the Skinner Mouvedre. That was a popular wine at, um, yeah, at the Girl and the Fig, and and such a great story behind that vineyard of how the family originally was had made wine like, you know, generations ago in that area, and then, you know, it was Mike I think was some sort of attorney or something down in Southern California, and then his his boys were just hiking up in that area and found some sign that said like Skinner Vineyards or something, and did some research and found out that it used that their family used to make wine there, and so they, you know purchased the property and, and started carrying on the family tradition. No, it's so wild. And uh, I don't know if, if any of you know Chris Pittenger, who's at Limerick mm -hmm. Lane now. Yep. Uh, Chris used to be the winemaker at that time. And already here in Napa. It's actually the house that I'm sitting in now um, that we moved into a year ago. Um, the previous tenant used to have some pretty big uh, wine parties. And so... Chris and I met and started geeking out about soils and geology and all, all the stuff. And he, and I had done my, my kind of reading and research. Um, and he was the one who then introduced us to, to the grower that we were working with uh, to source our, our fruit up there. The, the Mansfields from Goldbutt who kind of have a pretty long list of clients, um, including Donkey and Goat, Helen Kipling, all, all, all those people. So we're pretty lucky with that connection. So that was the, the so what was the first so the very wine? first wine so what you have is our second vintage of Mavedra and our first vintage of Rosé 
so 2017 was then our first vintage. And as Lady Luck would have it, you know, I remember 16 being a pretty epic vintage and really one of those forgiving ones where, where the stars kind of aligned and it was fairly straightforward. And then in 17, it was a whole different ballgame of heat waves and just crazy heat spikes and, um, and then cold snaps and then the fires. So we were pretty fortunate to pull in. I mean, I don't think anywhere outside of Napa and, and Sonoma were as affected in 17. Um, but I, I was very happy that we were able to pull in a little bit early. And so then 2018 rolled around and that was way more of, a, um, of what I had imagined. And so to take a little bit of a step back, so what we were, what we've been like planning and trying to do with, with uh, Belong is to really focus on making, making um, regional specific wines. So we've got um, this kind of idea where, you know, there's, there are so many single vineyard wines and what we wanted to do is really focus on the region and kind of build up this um, patchwork and, and great example of what the region can do. So, in scalability is always going to be a challenge, but our first vintage, we started with, um, with half a ton from two vineyards. And then in 18, we were able to get about 10% Syrah in the mix. And so there's three vineyards in that mix. And in the 19, we were able to build that up to five vineyards. So what that allowed us to do is really kind of explore all the different soils and, and areas on, I guess, the northern side of, of 50. So everything from, from kind of down by Lotus um, area by the American River all the way up to kind of Camino. And so in that elevation change, you're going from about 1,300 feet all the way up to 2,800 feet elevation and some huge differences in ripening. Um, and it really kind of, I think, has allowed us to showcase a little bit of how I think um, one of the varieties that I think speaks really well for, for what the region is capable of. And the other goal that we've always had is to be really minimal intervention. So no, no sigillation, no fining, no filtration. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. S s what was that first word? Sigillation? A, a sigillation, no adding acid. Oh, oh, okay, okay. I'm used yeah. to hearing acidify, but I, I thought that was some new thing. <laughs> it was, it was uh, similar to the way, you know, if you, if you heard earlier, he didn't say, Australia, it was Australia. 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 Sigillate. All right. I think, yes. Yeah, so, and so the other thing that, that I really love is whole cluster fermentation. So foot stomped, whole cluster inclusion. The first vintage, it was two bins. So one of them was foot stomped, the other one wasn't. This is 18. This one went up to 75%. Uh, and the 19 is 75% as well. And then the other thing that I'm a huge fan of and I kind of have Tim uh, Milo's to thank for that one is extended maceration. So this was on the skins and I kind of left it on there um, as well, a little bit um, where you have the harvest date and we try to make it a little bit vague. Um, so our whole, all of our labels are kind of based on a, a field journal kind of concept, but we want to leave a little bit of the geeky information on there for people who want that, but it's not, you know, a precursor to needing that to enjoy the wines. Um, and so I think this was on the skins for about 24, 25 days. And tell us what and you skins, like about skins and stems, right? Cause it's, if it's yeah. yeah. And what is it that you like about whole cluster? Like what is it about stem inclusion that you think it, you know, somehow um, has positive effects on the wine in the end? 
Yeah, for me, it's it's the main element is the freshness and the and the additional, um, I guess, herbaceousness and and layers of complexity that it brings in on that front on the on the flavor and uh, aromatic side. But the thing that one of the things I love the most is that I find that um, whole cluster done well and not over extracted, not overworked, tends to give you. Um, a different kind of mid palette and it kind of broadens the wine a little bit and, and brings kind of this freshness um, on the palette in terms of texture. And since we don't use any new of this different kind of tannin um, grain, almost if I can call it like on a sandpaper label, you're getting a different grain in the mix of the skin tannins. Right. Like, like a, like a <clears throat> more coarse or less coarse grain you're talking about? It's, it's a little bit of both. I think, I think if you were to take a stem and just chew on that, like it seems more coarse, but the wine matrix is such an interesting thing where sometimes if you add a coarse tannin, it'll actually smooth out some of your other tannins. Like they kind of marry up and it's not this like one plus one equals two. It's, it's a whole different equation where it's kind of like, like Lego blocks kind of filling each other in almost. And I find that that really kind of works well um, with with own variety. The tannins um, are really that, that, that finely grained in this wine book, Brian. Um, and one of the things you know that with with stem inclusion in California, um, a lot of vineyard sites the berries themselves ripen faster than the stems ripen. Right? If you're going to put stems into a wine. Um, just like the berries you want to use, you know, you're looking for a certain expression of, of ripeness. And I find often with stem inclusion wines um, that they taste like unripe stems. This to me, I, I didn't get that at all. This is 75%, you said, stem uh, yeah. luster. Um, and it doesn't have, so is that a vineyard site thing? Is that something that you're looking for? Do you include stems from certain vineyards that ripen, a, you know, more, sort of in line with, with the fruit or is that just, you know, you got lucky? Um, no, I, I think it is, it's intentional. Um, I, it's fishy and tasting. I don't taste the stems, but I've kind of dipped the fruit intensity. Um, but I find that in El Dorado, it's a, it's a shorter growing season because you've got all this cold air coming down from the Sierras. Um, so the season starts a couple of weeks after Napa and Sonoma, but then it gets really, really crazy hot during the day. Nighttime, it, I mean, it's moderated definitely by the elevation, but it's not nearly kind of the swing that we find here, I think, in Sonoma coasts or, or coastal affected um, areas. And so I think you've got all that sun that really kind of ripens things pretty quickly, which is, I think, the other reason that I love Mavetra up there um, and, or, or Rome varieties up there is because they, they can do really well with a shorter growing window versus something like cab um, or, or things like that. And so I think when I'm, when I'm walking the vineyards, I'm trying to make sure that it's, it's ripe stems, but it's not something that I am scared about because I've done a lot of stem inclusion now on the Tankerage winery wines and, and some other experiments where even if you think something, even if you think that it's under ripe stems, I still preferred it to the um, destemmed versions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but but you're, you're coming into, but then the only thing that comes into play is um, 
is being very, very careful in your extraction methods. And so while I said 20, while we have extended macerations going on, once the wine kind of hits dryness, it's not the same approach anymore. It's much more of like, um, you know, having a tea bag um, of really tannic tea that you're trying to extract very slowly. So it'll be like, give it a punch down and then wait two days and like, okay, no, it needs more tannin. And it's, it becomes this, this really, really gentle approach. Um, and, and tasting it every single day and trying to make sure that you're not going into that hard territory that you can with, with stems. Um, but I've, I've been pretty shocked with how even un underripe seeding stems does magic in Grenache or, or other things. Um, but I, th I don't think it's a blanket approach. You can't say it's like the same everywhere. And I think it's also pretty vintage specific. Um, but I think that kind of tasting and really making sure that the right things are happening is, is kind of the key in that. I think the thing that's also interesting is you're talking about extended maceration at like 20 days. And um, for, you know, people that hear you talk about a calf or a Sonoma or Napa um, extended maceration where you're like 45 days, you know, and 50 days. And um, uh, I just wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, Tim and I talk about this very often because Tim is, Tim is such a huge fan of extended macerations and, he and I kind of get into this philosophical bent about it um, because there's kind of a, uh, I think there's a general movement to make um, wines that are delicious, but they're warm, quick ferments that give you this real intense fruit expression early on, but that sometimes lack depth and, and persistence. And that's a newer school. I, I almost think over the last maybe even 10 years, that's become kind of one of the norms. And so doing those 35, 45 day macerations have become way, way less prevalent than they probably used to be. Um, but, but especially on something like cab that's destemmed that has, I mean, and now, now we're talking about like fully, fully ripe cab, even if it comes in the 28, 29 bricks, um, those, those skins tend to have a lot left in them. And the other thing that, that Tim and I, and, and he's a way smarter dude, I, I'll ever be but um the thing that he talks about is the stuff that we can't measure you know you've got all these different tannin assays and uh harbors and adam adams analyses that you can do with ets and all these people but they all measure the same kind of stuff but there's a lot left that we can't analyze yet that comes from skins basically really really breaking down and releasing stuff that that we can't quantify quite yet but it just means it becomes more and more delicious and i think the, the taking it back to our wines, you know, I'm also one of the main things that I keep an eye on is pH and TA. So this wine is 3.85 pH, um, even though it doesn't quite taste like that. And that's at 13, talking about the the Mavedra? Yeah, and that's at 13.1 alcohol. So that's one of the big challenges in the really volcanic and kind of granitic soils up in El Dorado is that the pHs tend to kind of want to shoot up on you, um, and, and so. So if you're trying not to acidulate it, that means your window is a little bit more narrow. And so that's kind of how I approached this by making this mavid. And then um, and then knowing that you know that this the the skins are right because I mean it's it's there for a specific style. Then you become then you kind of get into more of a stylistic discussion. I think if I were to pick this wine in the 14 to 16 percent alcohol range, you could probably go you could probably go 40 days on an extraction. 
um, because the skins are, there's less hard characters that could potentially come out. Um, right. But I think that kind of becomes more of a stylistic discussion. And I think, you know, it took me a little while to figure out because one of the things that became the craziest to me is at 30% alcohol, the wines wanted to be crazy fruit forward, you know, and you, you kind of expect Mavedra to be this gamey, spicy um, animal kind of at 13% if you're looking at it through that Bandol lens. But then in El Dorado, there's so much sunshine um, and, and the heat some seasons more than others. And so at 13% alcohol, it wants to be fruit forward. And that's where the whole cluster came into me to start accentuating the spiciness and earthiness more that I love in Mavedra. And then that 10% Syrah really kind of helps dial that up even more. Um, and then the other thing that I kind of have finally realized is that this, this is basically our lowest elevation vineyards are the highest elevation vineyards in Bandol. So we're kind of more in line with Alto Adige in Italy, like super high elevation, which, uh, and even some parts of like the Jura. So, and those are all wines that I love drinking. I mean, like Taroldigo and, uh, you know, Pulsard, all those delicious stuff. They're not high, high, high color things, but they have depth and, and tannin and elegance. And that's kind of all the stuff that I'm, I was, I've realized that I really prize and I'm, I'm, I was really happy to kind of see expressed um, in, in the Mavedra. Hey, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, the, the whole color thing, like, like people are so caught up in, the general public is so caught up in, you know, if it's not dark, then it can't be full flavored and, and full body. And, um, you know, those of us that make Grenache and Mouvedra, we, we know that that's not necessarily um, it has to be true. Or uh, Lagrine. I don't know if you've ever had Lagrine from well, Alta Adige. Yeah. I mean, we, we made Lagrine, you know, at, at, at uh, Imagery and for Benziger. And I mean, that was why Joey liked it in his, in his blending corner because the color, at least from California, Lagrine was so incredibly dark, you know, more like Malbec than. I think what you think of um, the Italian ones, right? Hey, can I ask a really stupid question about these extended macerations? Like, uh, when you're talking about 30, 45 days, what point are you adding? Well, so. So extended maceration basically is defined as any, any point after which alcohol, alcoholic fermentation is done. And so depending on your yeast, you could be done in five days or you could be done in 20 days, depending. But most of the time, I think I see it happening in kind of seven to 10, seven to 12 days. Most of the alcoholic fermentation is done. And so in terms of the wine matrix, you've got, uh, you've got color, you've got anthocyanin, and you've got tannin and alcohol and so the if you have zero alcohol that means you basically just got a water medium that you're extracting in and tannins can't extract in a water medium unless it has high temperature so if you're able to really pump up your temperature of your tank if you have tank heating not everybody does i mean if, if you're fermenting in a bin you can try to add some you know um, aquarium heaters or things like that but mainly you're extracting color. You're trying to get as much color extracted on the early side as possible. And then once alcoholic fermentation starts, it's twofold in that you're introducing alcohol into the medium and you're introducing heat from the kinetics of the fermentation. And it's both of those things that mean 
it's easier to extract the tannins that are in the skins or stems as well. Um, and so then at a certain point, alcoholic fermentation is done, but now you've got like this 13 to 16% alcohol medium in which you still have your skins. And that's when you can start being more kind of playful slash careful about your extraction um, after that. Because, because remember, Brian, alcohol is like a stripping agent. And, um, and so if you, if you work everything too hard, when, um, when you have a high presence of alcohol, you risk, you know, getting the bitter tannins out of the seeds or, um, you know, whatever you don't want out of the skins. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking of like that, like after it's already fermented dry, but you still have it sitting on these, on these skins for like another month, like. Uh, do a lot of people do that? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, Sam, I, I do tet, um, the Adutet red wines are like almost 10 days of cold soak fermentation on the front end of maceration on the front end. So, you know, you're doing that non-alcoholic, just water extraction, trying to get more, trying to get m more color. And then you do that long, slow, you know, it wasn't super hot alcoholic fermentation. And then, you know, in 2018, the first year we did the Outer Tets, um, we probably picked it at the end, you know, mid to late October. We didn't press the, the juice out until almost the middle of December. We were doing, wow. everybody left town and my dad and I were doing punch downs at Stone Edge. And, and there's, there's sort of like uh, to, 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 Burtis is, is, is that very sort of like gentle teabag kind of approach where we're, it's not like the punch down where you, you know, you see it and you have the tool and you're pushing really hard and mixing it up and getting air in. You're just sort of uh, pushing down the, the cap, the, the pumice at the top and just kind of getting it wet enough, just pushing it down until, until the wine and the juice runs up to the top and, you know, twice a day, just kind of like very gently, dropping the cap back into into the wine and we did that for like 45 days i think yeah. um i had my twice a day for 45 days yeah wow. i had my that 09 um syrah that i made from juicy creek that was uh 47 days on skins from cold soak to pressing um, and, and how did you decide that like what day was the day <laughs> like at that uh, it point. actually it actually came into um it was time to it was time for thanksgiving and i wanted to be done with it um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um but you know like um scott uh scott rich from talisman like his pinots that he makes once they get dry then he actually covers them with plastic and puts sand around them so there's like no there's, there's no air getting to them. They're covered with sand. And he puts the lids on them and puts them away for like another two and a half weeks. And then they pull them out. Um, uh, and, and, that, and then he just takes off the top inch of the skins and kind of that's, they're totally dry anyway. He sacrifices them because they might have some bad aromas. But when you get down to where it's actually wet, it smells great. And then they just press that. Um, and, and that's kind of, that's, and that's on Pino. Um, so it, it's, everybody's got their, you know, little secret they keep in their holster. Uh, so he puts sand. He covers it. Literally like, he puts the plastic down on top, 
He put, puts plastic he puts down. Puts sand on top of the musk. And, 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 he, and he folds the plastic up. No, no. So the plastic is down, and then he folds the, um, the edges up, and then he covers the whole outside with sand because it seals it very tight. The weight holds the plastic down, and it doesn't allow any air to get in whatsoever um, because the sand, you know, will fill in, and he gets a very tight seal that way. Right. Huh. It's a pain in the ass to deal with, sure. um, you know. But yeah, the, the, I mean, you got to be careful when you take that thing off, right? The last thing you want is dumping a bunch of sand. In the I don't think yeah. Well, you know what? If you, if, if, if you met, yeah, the sand will just fall out for sure. I, might and, take and some you, like, you know, so, proteins and solids with them. I'd be like a little bit of a, of a rough fighting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if you met his cellar master, uh, Miguel, you know that not a single piece of sand goes not inside that wine and not a single grain of sand ends up on the floor either um so that's that's kudos to miguel man um so, so can we take a moment actually and talk about your employers for a second i i love the concept of tankerage in general and you know you're in literally the heart of napa valley you could probably was it you know like a, a really well-struck driver to to the entrance of castella d'amorosa like, that's the neighborhood right um and it's the antithesis of what you'd expect. And, yeah. and the fact that you get to experiment and do all these crazy things there. So let's talk about just you know, like, like, let's shine the light on them for a second, talk about all the cool things they do, and then maybe talk about what you get to learn and like some of the things that you've been able to take out of it. I know you talked about it a little bit, but just like how great that is to do something like that in a, yeah. In the heart of Napa Valley. Oh, thank you. I, I think that's 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 a great idea. So Tank is coming up on their sixth anniversary. Um, seven kind of initial thoughts of it. Um, and so the goal has always been to celebrate vintage California. Um, and the goal has always been to make one-off wines, with the exception of maybe three um, over the uh, the course of its life, um, and then to kind of really explore and have fun with things and do different things and experiments, but also have, um, have some wines that, that are going to challenge people and people's tastes and have other ones. So, um, just for tank alone, I think we're somewhere between 15 and 25 different wines every year, depending. And so they will range from a single barrel bottling that will release, um, on a Friday, you know, and, it blows out in 30 minutes or up to kind of max production of about 450 cases, maybe. So they're all small lot wines and the biggest production wine is going to be the Rosé. And that's about 900 cases to a thousand cases every year. And um, luckily I was able to pretty early on prove the point to, to ownership that, you know, in able to make a good Rosé, you have to, um, you have to pick it for Rosé. Like there, you can't do Sanye, you can't do any of that stuff. Like you have to direct press it. And that, that then led us into an interesting um, foray into the foothills to find more affordable grapes. And um, so with Tank, I've been very, very fortunate to do everything. Like I said, from, you know, we do the Napa wines, but there's orange wine, there's carbonic white wine, carbonic red wine, there's pit nuts, um, a whole range of stuff kind of in between, like 
pulling out juice in the middle of a ferment and keeping it separate on Zinfandel and bottling that like a super bright, almost nouveau kind of style. Um, and so I, I've been incredibly fortunate as, on top of all that to work with, I think it's 45 different varieties and mainly because of source from everywhere from Mendocino, Sonoma, Napa, Solano County, um, Clarksburg, Contra Costa Lodi, Placer, El Dorado, Amador, Calaveras, and down to San Luis Obispo. We went and got Gruner Veltliner for two years. And then I said, I can't do that drive just for Gruner anymore. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's been an, an awesome kind of learning school because that's where a lot of the whole cluster experiments were happening. Um, and I think the other thing that it taught me, you know, I think so often in California, we use these French parameters. Well, I'm, I'm picking early. I'm picking my rosé at 21.5 at 20, 20.5. 20 and it sounds early in the context of, I think, French wine. But in working with um, really warm regions here in California, I've realized that we reach flavor maturity, especially on rosé and white wine, at a way earlier point than, than people think. And at a, at a very, it's very easy to kind of miss your window. Um, because even if we sometimes have to acidulate something, if it comes in at 3.5 pH, um, for rosé or for, for white wine, um, a little bit of acidulation, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with that in a sense. But the thing that you can't really fix is, is not having that real freshness of flavor and, and freshness on the nose. And so we've picked Mavedra for tank uh, for rosé at 17 bricks. Wow. And it tastes incredible. It tastes like crushed rocks, you know, just like you picture wow. it tasting like in, in Provence. And this is from decomposed granite soils in, in the town of Loomis in Granite Bay, you know, Folsom area. So it's yeah. more than the hell, basically. But it's, it just makes this wine that you kind of shock when you taste it. And it's under screw cap. It's so easy. But it's like, it's crazy fresh and mineral and all these things. And it's 10 point something percent alcohol sometimes. And so that's, that was kind of my other big learning curve. And, and Tim, have I, Tim, Tim and I have kind of explored this a little bit further as we've, you know, expanded our reach on, on making even some Chenin Blanc or uh, Pickpool, all this stuff. It's like, I think people don't necessarily pay as much attention as early as they need to sometimes. Um, and that's kind of a very good thing. Take into, you're not working in a region that you have a lot of forgiveness in terms of the picking window. Like you really have to be on it. And, in, and a two-day difference in picking can go from tasting saline and, and kind of how I want our rosé to taste to it tasting like slightly flabby and just like candy floss, which is not where I want to take our rosé. That's awesome. Yeah. The, well, to, to finish up on Tank Roger, have you ever like just hung out in the tasting room and listened to what the tourists say of that, you know, they kind of like gone to some of the bigger touristy kind of places and then, you know, they walk in there and it's A, it's got this sort of funky vibe and B, there's all these varieties they've probably never heard of and can't pronounce. So just like, what are the, what are the, because I love it and, I'll, you know, I've been there once, late seen pictures, I think it's one of the sort of like more interesting things accessible yeah. in Napa happening. Uh, but what are, what are people's reactions? I think it's like most people find it a breath of fresh air, you know, it's, and that's like, that's, that's always what I love about it is that you can have this limo roll up that's been to, to a castle. It's been to a cave. It's been to 
a bright and shiny people and you can kind of see them relaxing it's like that's kind of the part that i love about tank it's 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 taking the stuffiness out of wine because i think so easy it's so easy for everybody to get caught up and and i mean we're seeing a reckoning now in the past eight months i think especially the wine industry you know between the and and everything we're just realizing it's like it it's it penetrant i think part of that solution of being like it's a forty dollar yield and a cool story and you don't have to pay a hundred bucks to enjoy a bottle of wine that kind of element to it that, that i love about it um and so yeah there's definitely a lot of kind of fun moments but you kind of see people taking a little bit of a breath and realizing like oh it's okay that i don't know how to pronounce this or know kind of anything right who's the what's who's the uh, so, money behind uh, tank? basically it's um it's a james harder uh, his family owns James Cole Winery, and he's originally from Canada. So maybe he brings some of. Uh, and I and I mean I'm from South Africa, so he he took a a, a chance on me um, as an immigrant, basically, and and trying to help me get my my on my feet and and settled in here in, in Napa. Um, but he has always had this love of, of vintage kind of California and Americana. And so that plays super heavily into the design elements and, um, and even the naming of the wines, the decor, all, all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, he's, but he, um, he was in wine sales in Canada and then he moved here to, uh, he moved to San Francisco to work for Wilson Daniels on the um, brand building slash marketing side. And so gained all that experience and then, he and his wife started uh, James Cole and he had always had that eye on, on that location, which um, was actually back in the day, an old Indian um, racing motorcycle repair shop. Uh, oh. He used to run it. And so we have one of his original Indians in there. That's the red Indian you see on the inside uh, store, yeah. store there on the inside. So yeah, it's kind of like paying, to kind of that old school that is of it. But, of the, yeah. the, the Canadian tuxedo of Napa, so that <laughs> yeah, exactly. all that makes sense now neighbors to the north. <laughs> we, have some, we have some listeners in Canada. They brought... Uh... Awesome. Yeah, and so, and his brother owns a winery um, in Lake Country in, in BC. Um, okay. Is that so? We the here's the, the Grenache blend that was brought. I can't remember the name of the producer, but it was uh, like the Okanagan Valley. Yeah. I think is that is that similar close by? That's the region. It's That's like it, yeah. It's basically like having having vineyards and a winery looking down at Lake Tahoe is what it looks. Whoa. like. Uh, one of the most beautiful places I've I've, I've seen um, in so like definitely top five most beautiful places, and then. Just epic pinots, and then there's some spot uh, epic pinots and chardonnay. But I had some great Chenin Blanc there, um, and then there's a couple of spots that are a little bit warmer, so you get that um, slightly, like, almost like a high desert kind of uh, climate. Oh, interesting. 
wash and things like that. Um, but yeah, just if you can, one, one day when the restrictions and stuff are lifted. When we're allowed to leave our homes <laughs> yeah. or wherever, <laughs> whatever we're what? allowed to do. Or not when, to do. when we go back to taking the podcast on the road again. Yeah, exactly. As opposed right. to just zooming on the road. Right. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> well, the great thing is, is while we've been doing all these podcasts with people via Zoom, when we can start traveling, we have a bunch of places to go back. Right. So we have some people to go and hang out with. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's been cool that you know we've gotten to do some shows that we wouldn't normally get to do, like talking to a winemaker in Israel. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Right. And yeah. you know, in New York, Virginia, we've been all over the place. We right. get some Washington. Maybe we should. Can we find? I don't even know how to deal with the time change to South Africa. Can we do a South African? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's 10 hours at the moment, okay. so it's super possible. Yeah, right. wake up a little early here and then... Uh, it's, you could probably hook us up with some good people, right? Oh, hell yeah. No, there's some characters. It's definitely a little bit of cowboy country down there. So do you know, um, do you know Tegan at all? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I met Tegan when he was working the vintage in South Africa. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. Um, reconnected when I did the vintage here. Uh, and then, I mean, everybody knows Tegan. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, he's such a huge <laughs> proponent for South African wines and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, also my, and he worked with basically the preeminent, the, the guy who's responsible for basically uh, him and another, another winemaker put the Swartland area on the map, uh, right. which is now world known. But back in the day, it was thought A, too hot and B, just too, um, there were no wineries making, there were basically just co-ops in the area making wine. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden the old vineyards were appreciated. And, and I think that played into it for me a little bit as well of um, the foothills is I remember coming out in 2010 and 2011 and talking to people because of doing any kind of reading, you know, the Swartland is a really special place because of its soils. But I mean, it's generally the standard temperature is, uh, is hundred degrees or hotter. So it's a <laughs> Really, really warm area, and so and on top of like being I was kind of talking about. So I remember Noma and I'm like, so I heard the foothills. There's like granitic soils. I'm like, what? But not even Syrah, and they're like, yeah, no, it's not really good. And that just struck me as really odd because I had this reference of how crazy hot it is in the Swartland and how amazing the wines were. And then that's kind of how I was drawn into that area and, and how through Tank I was able to start exploring and then meeting some of the right people. Um, it just kind of put it in a very interesting perspective. But yeah, I think, um, I think in general, like South Africa is still super underrated. Um, there are some wines, you know, that have definitely pulled um through their world higher prices you know if you're looking for some of ibn saudi's wines or the millennials like higher end wines you're looking at a six, 60 to 100 bucks a bottle but there's still so many wines in that 20 to 20 to 50 dollar range that are just incredible values can we talk a little bit about where the like pinotage thing came from because it's not it, it it's not even 
is it like top five varietal there? There's not a ton of Pinotage, right? I mean, there's more. It just is like, it's like, it's just a truly South African thing because it's the variety that was made there, the cultivar that was made there, you know? Um, but it's a crazy funny story. So the building um, at the university that I studied at is named after the professor that, that did that cross. So it was this botanist, uh, viticulture professor guy who in his backyard crossed Pinot Noir and, and Senso, which was known as Hermitage, uh, Hermitage back in the day. So that's where you get the Pinotage. Okay. And so before they could, they really knew what it was in the 1920s, it was still called Hermitage. No one really knew like, oh, it's Senso, which doesn't necessarily have a lot of respect most places, but I think it's one of the varieties here in California that has a lot of potential made in kind of the right way, especially like if you can grow it and keep the crop load in a reasonable place, which is still really high. I mean, with how big the berries are, it makes some really, really interesting wines. But anyway, so in the 1920s, he did this in his backyard and then forgot about it. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, someone found these vines and tasted the fruits and went, that actually tastes really, really good and started propagating it at the nurseries of the university. And then slowly it kind of made its way into production. Um, and there's been a lot of studies commissioned, especially by the wine industry in South Africa, because Pinotage, if you ferment it too cold, it can go um, isoamyl acetate, which is like the banana flavor, really intensely that you can't get out of it. Um, and if you like, so, so it's, it's one of those ones, it's like, it's as finicky as Pinot kind of to make. Um, but then it has this little bit more robustness from the Senso. The and so I think a lot of people have been trying to figure it out. But I think the best examples, I mean, as with anything, there are certain versions, versions that are fermented on chips and um, staves and things like that. And they have names that make you think of coffee because they have such an intense coffee flavor. And I mean, it's stuff like instead of cappuccino pinotage, it would be cappuccino chinotage on the label. Like things like that, and you're like, oh, come on, people. Come on. So uh, it, it didn't have like the best reputation, but the most uh, renowned producers have old vines, make them in, in really thoughtful ways, and, and they're really long-lived, delicious wines. Has anyone tried to plant any of that around this area? There are, uh, I think there's less than 100 acres in California. So I've, I've tried to find all of them, but there's some in Mendocino, there's some in uh, like Saratoga, there's some in Lodi, and there's some in El Dorado. And I, and I, I really want to make a Pinotage under the Belong label at some point, um, just because it feels right, like kind of a full, full circle kind of moment. Um, but I would probably treat it more like either a carbonic lower extraction or like a Pinot kind of delicate extraction picked a little earlier than Try and make the high octane. Oh, and there's a, the, the other one that's pretty well known, um, Fort Ross Vineyards, uh, is owned by South Africans or, or expats. And they have a pinotage grown there on, on uh, outside Jenner that is pretty interesting to taste. Old spice. Yeah. So on, on that kind of note of, of for Belong, uh, it, what is the plan? Um, is it? Yeah, so it's, <laughs> you know, best made plans. Um, we started with two barrels. Um, then second vintage was five barrels. Our third vintage, which is releasing next year, we made 10 barrels. And that's the one that I'm the most excited about. 2019 was a very cool growing season, um, which I think is awesome because it, 
It gave us some more time to figure out hang times and all that kind of stuff. But we also added two new vineyards into the blend. And so it's really becoming more of that El Dorado County red wine that I wanted it to be. But still um, all El Dorado County. Still all El Dorado County, yep. And so five vineyards, again, 1,300 to 2,800 feet. And there's two Syrah vineyards now in the mix. And one of them is like one of the best Syrah vineyards, I think, in the area, Fanati, which is this own-rooted, gorgeous vineyard um, that that really is is a kind of a special site. But so, so that was 10 barrels, and that's when we made our first vintage of rosé. Um, five barrels made 140 cases. And then this year, when the shit hit the fan, um, we, had, we had already picked our rosé, but we had those really terrible flowering conditions. And so even though we picked the same amount in, uh, in, in looks, so we picked four bins of, uh, so it was all, all picked together, the Mavedra, Sinso and Grenache was picked together. And we did that again. And the four bins weighed out um, 0.3 tons lighter because of how weird the season was. And so right. we'll be making about 10 cases of rosé from 2020. And then we only picked um, 1.5 tons. So um, we picked three vineyard blocks. And I think one of those, a Syrah block, we skirted. The, the smoke taint. Um, and so we, we stopped picking after that because we had done micro ferments and we just were not hopeful uh, of, of positive results on that. And so if we do make a 2020 red wine, it'll be a Syrah uh, and it'll be one barrel and like one keg. And, um, and so, so that answers the question. So that when you, when you get the Syrah, it's fermented separately from the Mouved. Yes. Yep, exactly. Uh, different vineyard blocks, different areas. So, so we tend to keep things as apart as we can and then blend it. We do pre-blend, I guess, like post-ML, kind of taste everything and assemble the blend and, and see where things are at. To, because we are, we're bottling um, less than 12 months, kind of nine to 10 months range, and then doing about six months of bottle aging. And so the earlier we can work on that integration, the more it helps kind of, on the early stage of, of the release. Right. And, um, and, and Muved, and Muvedra not Mataro, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, all of the Muved is, um, is Tablas Creek material. So some of them are older, maybe 20 years uh, old, some of the er earlier plantings in, in the area. Um, but um, I was fortunate enough to work with some of the Mataro clones and as much as I enjoy those wines, I, I've, prefer the tabla selections just in terms of complexity and, and flavors and things like that. Cool. I mean, uh, if you're going to capture Mavedra, capturing Boca style Mavedra is probably the direction to go. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you can't get, if you can't get Tompier, you might as well get Tablas, right? Yeah. Right. But, um, apparently, uh, Boca style was getting close to wiped out on their Mavetra side with Phylloxera. And so there's a rumor that they actually took cuttings from Tompier. Oh. So it might actually be part of Tompier in the, in the mix with the Mavedra. I, I could buy that. I could buy that explanation <laughs> for sure. Uh, but yeah, longer term, um, you know, we, we have ideas of branching outside of El Dorado, but staying in the foothills um, and, and maybe adding a, a small lot wine. Um, shorter term, next year we're thinking of adding a white wine um, from up there and it'll 
potentially be like a Chenin Blanc Vermentino blend, which I think is two of the varieties I find very exciting for, for California as uh, climate change resistant potentials. Um, and, and yeah, we... Uh, Bart and Brian, your, your poker face on right. the Vermentino Chenin Blanc blend was pretty great there because I know that you guys are both super excited on the inside about that. You're both like, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, it just... <laughs> <laughs> and just the future of, of the future of Chenin Blanc and Vermentino, like, I, I mean, people, I think, are coming around to Chenin Blanc, but Vermentino, you know, and, we, you know, we've talked about it more and more over the past year that, you know, we think it's an exciting, I think it's an exciting grape for California, and, and I love the flavors, I love acidity, so, you know, if that becomes, you know, I hope it doesn't become too popular, because then you got to pay more for it, but I like when it's in that perfect zone where, like, the right people know that it's really good, but not everybody knows. <laughs> Our club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's the other thing I'm very grateful to Tank for is um, having worked with all these varieties in all these regions. I'm very excited because there is a, there is a future here despite climate change. Um, but I do think some, some people need to look at the bigger picture and not try to plant cab or pinot everywhere. Um, you know, I mean, some of the Barberos that I've had in some of the quote unquote too warm regions are just incredible wines. Um, so yeah, it's kind of exciting times. And who does your wife actually get involved in the blending process? Yes. Yeah. So um, I got to give a big shout out to my wife. She is the main kind of um, the creative eye behind our design and our website. Um, manages all of our social media and does all the kind of back of house invoicing um, and and uh, consumer outreach and communications. But she's very much down for the cause, so um, it's not unusual. So she she has a day job uh, and she's kind of transitioned now into to doing uh, social media and graphic design consulting for her day job and taking on another client. But prior to that, she had a full-time day job. So she would come out to the night picks um, and then roll straight to work here in Napa right off of the night pick um, and, and be really part of the process, come to the winery, taste, help and punch downs. Um, and especially with the blending side, really kind of help me with even if you kind of pretty much know what you want to do, you still need to talk it out with someone. And she's really um, been awesome at, at kind of being that for, for Blanc. Yeah, great job on the labels. Bart and I were talking about them yesterday. Bart, go ahead and throw down your idea. No, we, we talked about it earlier that the, <laughs> the, the way to make the labeling even more expensive in that, um, yeah, it's the actual um, topo map uh, embossed. But I, it's funny, I was thinking for each of the pictures and, and Sam had said, well, you know, maybe this is the topo map of the vineyard, um, not of the inspiration. Um, so th- that would make it a little bit simpler. Yeah, uh, I, I wish it was that thoughtful, but yeah, no, the, the, the images do change. Um, so the Mavedra, that was obviously our first label. And that one took a long time time um, but I uh, with elements that we, we love and so it's this um, field journal concept and um, we love being outdoors love hiking 
we we love we basically say the mountains are our happy place so anytime we can get up to tahoe you know that's where we're at our happiest um and so this uh, the image was basically a little bit of inspiration from a hike we did in glacier national park um we did a huge road trip three years ago and um did oregon washington vancouver went up to jasper and banff and then came back down through montana and wyoming and idaho um, and so this is one of those images that kind of captured that wildness of it. And then it's this kind of mixed media approach. You've got a little bit of um, kind of hand-drawn art, almost like a photo element. Um, there's always a protea on the label. So that's the flower. And the protea is the national flower of South Africa. So there's kind of a little bit of a nod to my heritage. That's this right here. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So the protea is called the pincushion protea. Um, which is one of our favorites. And Chasing the Sunset, we actually came up with a name for that one um, on our honeymoon. So we spent a week in Paris and a week in Provence uh, in this little town called Cassis. And we were drinking three or four bottles of rosé every day. Um, and it was just the most epic kind of time. And even, even going out to restaurants, it was $15 for a bottle of rosé at a restaurant. And so they just really know how to live down there. Um, but in South Africa, there's a tradition called sundowners. So instead of saying meeting up for happy hour, you say, where are we going to meet up for sundowners? And you try to find like an epic location, like a bar with a, a view of the beach or the ocean. Um, and you basically have drinks and catch up with people as the sun goes down. And so that's kind of the idea behind chasing the sunset. And the uh, image for this is one of our favorite spots in South Africa to watch the sunset. Um, it's... Uh, it's basically like driving highway one, like super rocky cliffs. Um, and you have this gorgeous view uh, of the sunset. Beautiful. They're great labels. They got a little, uh, one of my, one of my dream podcast guests, Obi Coffin. They have a little like Obi Coffin. Oh, love Obi's work. Yeah. Oh, hey, you guys, I got to bounce out of here. Yeah. I got to go explain to a bunch of reporters from like, Oh. Reader's Digest, Sunset Magazine, the New York Times, why I sent them a picture of Phil flipping them off. <laughs> we got some, we got some like influencer love out of that already, Brian. Some of those people that you sent that wine to, like posting that on their Instagrams and definitely like, one, she kind of blew right past it. But one of them, one of the journalists, like her unboxing video on her Instagram story included <laughs> Phil's, Phil's, Phil's middle finger. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going to go put on a suit now and get on a Zoom with these people and, and explain explain this whole situation. So, Are you just putting the suit from top up, though, right? You're not putting this. I'm going to be at work, so I actually got to wear pants. I'm okay. going to be with the general manager of the Fairmont sitting next to me. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, Brian. All right. Hey, thank you, guys. Good to meet you, my brother. Wine is beautiful. And Sam, Sam, save me a little bit on the Movec because I want to try that. All right, I'll, I'll put the cork in it. You, maybe you come to work on Saturday or something. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, tell Jasmine. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. All right, well, um, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, anything you want to tell our listeners, any sort of uh, releases? Yeah, yeah go for plug, it. Uh, yeah, so we, we just um, – we always save our magnums. We only bottle 18 magnums of each wine. Um, we just released the, this Mavedra. So if you want some for the holidays, there's a couple left on the website. And then we also just started um, promoting again that we're doing kind of a holiday gifting 
um, gift packs, three packs. And if anyone's interested, we'll personalize writing notes, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's kind of it. We've got our new release. Um, sign up, belongwines.com. Sign up for the mailing list. We will be doing our next release in uh, late February next year. Okay. And, and, and you're on Instagram at belongwines? Uh, Belong Wine Co. on Co. Instagram. Yep. Uh, and, what's, and what's yours? Well, I, I, gotta, I told Bart this earlier. I have to admit this to you. The first time I saw you on Instagram, I don't know if you followed one of our things or I, I thought for sure that na guy's name was made up. <laughs> <laughs> like, that can't be somebody's real name. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I, yeah, I do remember following you guys. Yeah, so uh, I'm at Veritas VZ. Awesome. Veritas VZ. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, is he from New Zealand? No, that's News NZ. It's like, this, this is fake. <laughs> and, and, and then for our. No, but thank you guys so much for having me. It's, it was, go ahead, no, go ahead, Brian. Go no, ahead, Brian. Uh, th Thank you for being on. Yeah. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, do we, are we talking uh, happy hour? Repeal yeah, let's hour, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so uh, for our listeners out there on, uh, I don't think we've decided if it's going to be Friday the 4th. Let's keep what? it on the real holiday. On the 5th. So um, December 5th um, is the anniversary of the repeal prohibition. The and most important holiday during the holiday season. Exactly. And we're going to have a happy hour, virtual happy hour with everybody. We're going to invite a bunch of our past uh, guests to come on and just crack a bottle or a cocktail um, of whatever you want and let's um, let's just raise a glass together and have some fun. Sam will tell some stories and uh, might we'll even go be from true. there. Right. Yeah, so, oh, oh. right. And so, uh, so look for that um, in your social media information, more details about that. Um, Bertrude, thank you very much for being on the show and uh, we will talk to you soon. Uh, yeah. Should we do any other shout outs? Go ahead, go ahead, Sam. I know you got some. We got a shout out to uh, Hawk Waka Waka, Elaine Chuck and Brown, uh, the Van Italy uh, Wine Communicator of the Year. It's a huge freaking deal. It'd be a huge deal, future deal if she could actually be in Italy accepting it with you know thousands of the wine industry around her. But uh, shout out to friend of the podcast. She's clearly. Her three appearances on the Winemakers Podcast were part of her becoming the International <laughs> Wine Communicator of the Year. I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, speaking of, of holiday gifts, um, we just loaded up onto our website four different three-packs uh, from $89 to $149. Check that out. It's out in the email. I'll be social media buying gifts and stocking up whether you know it's for just you or you're doing the family thing or whatever um i think uh, duck daughter jennifer reichardt had a great post about just like now is the time buy local buy from small businesses amazon has uh made a hundred and jillion bazillion dollars already this year um so spread the love a little bit wouldn't agree yeah yeah and we have a, a a little gift guide of small businesses on our instagram um check it out there's a, a link tree in there. And Obi Kaufman's book is on, on uh, one of them. Napa Bookline is, is one of our favorite spots. Uh, small small business. So, yeah, check it out. Cool. Awesome. Drink more Mubedra. Drink more Mubedra. <laughs> yeah. And Shannon Blanc Vermentino blends. Right. <laughs> All right, guys. All right.
Thanks. Thank you. See you guys. See you, everybody. We'll see you next week. Subscribe, review. Uh, back episodes are somewhere on the internet. Go find them and listen to them if you want to. How's that? Good job. All right. Perfect. See ya. Bye.